What is up, guys? Welcome to episode 67, I think, of the Triage Method podcast. Um, hope you're all doing good. Hope you're all enjoying. Hope you, hope you all enjoyed last week's episode. We actually got a lot of feedback on that one. It was. Sorry, wait, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. There was no last week's episode because this is going to be coming out next Monday for us. And you skipped this Monday because you were taking a holiday or something. So let's get it straight. Hope they enjoyed two weeks, two weeks ago you were like oh i have to go uh, i can't oh, i have to get an airplane no 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 i have enough respect for our business to only move two hours from our time zone whereas you move like seven which well, is the main limiting factor in organizing that's, podcasts. that's very interesting i actually seem to remember last yeah last summer when you went to bali and we didn't record yeah. the podcast for three months because you had no that's internet connection. Oh. No, that's good. First, oh. Firstly, I only, went, oh. I only went away for one month. One month. We missed three podcasts. And that was because you wanted to talk to those muscle mentor bodybuilder people. It was disgusting. It's, Never again. It's just not true. Anyway, <laughs> this was not last week. What you're talking about was not last week. It was two weeks ago. Now continue. Continue. Anyway, we got feedback. Well, I got I get a message last night because they obviously feedback to me. But anyway, she said she said to pass it on. She said to pass it on to Patty as well. She said to pass it on to Patty. She said um, that it was our best podcast ever, and that we should be really, really proud, and that lots of people will get lots of things out of it. And I responded and said, "Well, you're actually the first person to give us any feedback on that episode, but thank you." So yeah, if you do have feedback, guys, let us know. Leave a review, all that sort of stuff. Anyway, this week we're talking about uncertainty um how to i guess navigate the world of personal training with uncertainty without becoming a sweaty mess and quitting because you're not able to make any decisions because that's essentially where you you need to you need to strike a balance here okay so we're going to talk about uncertainty why it is actually a beneficial thing that you could that you should try and include in your decision making but you don't want to become so uncertain that you can't make any decisions but you also don't want to be so certain that you think you know the answer to everything that you can predict people's outcomes because that's not particularly helpful. So where this is relevant is, you know, particularly for trainers earlier on in their career. So if you're a personal trainer, you're early in your career, you, you can only know so much. You've only worked with so many people and you can only predict people's outcomes to some degree. You know, the person who thinks they can predict everyone's outcomes when they come to them, is just lying pretty much or making it up or at least making some estimate based on other people and you can't exactly infer how that individual is then going to to what their results are going to be like so if you were to first start personal training and you have a handful of clients coming to you and some of them want to build muscle some of them want to lose fat some of them want to gain strength some of them want to get rid of some of their back pain let's say you're not going to know based on any research how long it's going to take, let's say, for that person to build five kilos of muscle or for that person to gain 30 kilos on their squat or for that person to get rid of their back pain. And this is what's really, really important because as it's become more popular to be quote-unquote evidence-based or science-based, generally what we end up doing is projecting the results of, results of research studies onto individuals without realizing that research studies primarily measure mean outcomes where there, and there's a distribution in that, in that outcome spectrum. So you could see that a 12-week program led to, let's say, an average of three kilos of muscle gain, gain across the group, 
Whereas there could be one individual on one side that actually lost a kilo of muscle and there could be another individual that gained seven kilos of muscle. So that's, that's for researchers, it's fine to report means. But for individual trainers, it's more important to recognize that, oh, this is actually an individual and I have no way of predicting at this point in time where they're going to lie on that spectrum in terms of results. So, so that is, that's why this is an important topic. Yeah, and although like we're kind of primarily going to be talking to, we'll call them beginner personal trainers, uh, the, this whole stuff that we're going to talk about is actually applicable to you as an individual if you are training yourself. Because, you know, I, I think if you're not in this whole health and fitness sphere in terms of it's not your career, like that's when you're at the, the most or you're more, more likely to be taken aback by these ra random claims. Like you'll see a, a scientific study that says X, Y, and Z result is attributed to X, Y, and Z variables, right? And you, you don't have the, the knowledge. Like it's not your career. It's not what you are truly interested in. Like you, you go to the gym as a hobby uh, to keep healthy, to keep fit, or maybe to supplement your sport. So you see these claims and you see someone maybe on Instagram, maybe on Facebook, maybe on whatever social media, or, you know, maybe you do keep up with the research, but you know, you, you see these claims and you, you kind of be, you're kind of left thinking that it is almost like, uh, you know, clockwork physics. You're like, Oh, put in this input and you get this output and here's the predetermined time that'll be like that. You'll, you'll get that outcome from. And it's like, that's, that's just not the way things work in, in the real world. And although a lot of people do make it out that that is the way things work, it, it just simply isn't. So I think even though we're probably going to say personal trainer or whatever, a lot like this does actually impact the, the, the general population, the individual themselves, because they're probably more likely to be, well, probably just as likely realistically be taken aback by these claims, these thought processes that are, that are going to go on, you know? So even though we are going to say personal trainer or whatever, like it does still apply to you if you are the everyday individual, right? Yes, sir. And I think a good place to, to start with this is to give you like an, an actual example of where this might apply. And I think, I think training volume as a whole like, is a decent kind of example of where this might apply because in general, what you'll kind of get from the research or the consensus among most professionals is that like 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week is probably a good recommendation for most people. But like what's often heard from that is 10 to 20 sets as opposed to like is likely to be useful for most people. Like when we, when we give that qualifier to that statement, we're kind of saying that, oh God, if I was looking at this room of people, I might say that that is like might suit a lot of them. Okay. But it's not going to suit everyone. And like what this then means is that you do actually have to approach training with uncertainty and with the idea that I actually don't know what's going to be best for you as an individual. And I say that to every single client that signs up. I'm like, look, when we start off with coaching, I'm going to be starting with a relatively general starting point. Like, I'm not sure what's going to work best for you, but we can hopefully find the best approach over time. And that does actually take time. Like, I'm not going to just know after a month that, oh, yeah, when we do, let's say, four times per week frequency on your horizontal pushing movements, you tend to gain way more strength than when you do three times per week or whatever. You, like, you can actually tease those things out over time. Like, you definitely can. But 
they might actually change over time as you move forward as well, which is then another problem. So that's why it's important to be uncertain because I guess like when I look at, if I was to review all of my client programs, like I, I might have some individuals who are doing what would look to be very high volumes for some body parts, whereas other individuals who may be, who are in a different point in time, they've, you know, different genetics, different previous exposures, etc. They could be doing like seven or eight sets for a body part per week and they could be making fantastic progress. So for me to then, put that person on a program where they're doing, let's say, 25 sets for a body part, it wouldn't really make no sense because no, I'd have no reason to believe because I might have inferred it from someone else that that same individual would respond in that way to that. So like, essentially what you have to do when you're trying to consult with the scientific research is to recognize that you're building a framework for decision making and you're trying to think of it in terms of like, I almost like probability and that like I'm increasing the probability that I might be correct as a starting point, but I'm definitely not creating the perfect program. So when we write about things, you know, in our beginner's ebook, for example, we discuss things like training volume, we discuss frequency, we discuss intensity, and we give very general guidelines there, but there are literally probably like, like hundreds, thousands, infinite combinations of those different variables that could potentially work for someone at one point in time. Not to mention the fact that that could also work across multiple different, um, countless different exercise variations so you have this count like you have an endless number of combinations of these different things that you could put together to create a successful program so when you have that many options you have to be uncertain like you have no choice but to be uncertain so when your client asks you you know why is this in my program you don't have to feel like oh here's this study or i, I know this for sure you can you can say things like look, it's, it's likely that this might be helpful, but we might have to change it over time and that'll be fine. But let's see how you respond. You know, and then the person's like, oh, cool. I'm actually part of this process and I get to actually see what happens as well. And, and yeah, I like people do appreciate uncertainty. I found from coaching anyways that people aren't scared off by you being honest with them and, and being open to uncertainty. At least that's, that's what I found from experience. Yeah, and it, it makes more sense. Like I think it instills more confidence rather than, yeah. away from that confidence in the, the trainer or you know the the ability of the individual like if you come to it from the perspective that we're going to essentially start this process in a generalist sense in terms of you're going to create a program that you know from the best theory that we have from your best experience that you can kind of go this is what works for a lot of people as a starting point right and we'll say it is that kind of 10 to 20 sets per week per body part right and you go this is how we're going to start with things you know you may go okay i actually only need three sets for this body part it just responds really really well i'm able to get a really good connection the the movements that i have available to me just hit it perfectly you know and that could be you three sets you know conversely you could be in the position where you know you don't really feel the muscle working you don't really get a connection with it at all. You don't even feel that there's any tension on it. The movements you have available to you, just they're not really adequate. They, they kind of stimulate it, but they're not really stimulating it as you'd like. And as a result, then you go, okay, well, maybe I have to do a little bit more volume in those movements. Or again, like we're going to talk about later on, you, know, you might find some movements work really well for a certain body part, uh, but they overload another body part. and that's leading you to feel under-recovered. For example, you might find squatting works really well for your legs, but it really overloads your lower back. And as a result, you know, you're actually able to get less volume in terms of your total volume because 
you're you're doing uh something that overloads your lower back and as a result you can't do say i don't know ordeals or you can't do deadlifts or you can't do back movements maybe rowing or stuff like that because your lower back is now overly fatigued from this movement and again this this is why you have to look at things in a generalist sense you know if you are starting you simply don't know how you're going to respond and again i think this is going to be the the recurring theme in this in this podcast you effectively have no control over your results right and i'm saying that kind of half-heartedly like obviously you do have some control over your results but what i mean is you actually have no control over the magnitude of results that you get from a given stimulus right and the only thing that you really have control over is the input itself right like you you can't control how you will respond to a training stimulus you can't you can't predict how you're going to respond to a certain calorie level you know nothing in this health and fitness sphere can you accurately predict how your body is going to respond we can make some best guesses but ultimately you have to let that passage that flow of time occur before you can actually see how things play out right but at the end of the day, all you have control over is the input itself, right? And again, that input may need to be changed over time. It's a variable. Like it's not going to be the same thing consistently for the rest of your life. Like learning something in your first year of training doesn't mean that same thing applies in your 10th, 20th year of training, you know? So you still have control over the input. You have like very little control over the output. So when, when you think of all of this stuff, it eventually kind of boils down to control the stuff that you can control. Forget about the, the result, the end goal, in terms of trying to influence that outside of actually controlling the, the input itself, right? Um, but yeah, that's, that's me rambling. Yeah, no, no your rambles make sense. But it, it is... It is super important because like when I, when I look at, you know, the, the information that lots of like really good thinkers put out as it relates to training, it's often like in, interpreted as individual advice, whereas I actually would almost interpret it as almost like a public health guideline in that like when you're thinking about nutrition and stuff, people often think, people often look at things like uh, government guidelines for diet and think that's so stupid. Whereas if you actually zoom out and you're like, you know, if everyone in the population actually ate like this, you know, if it was actually implemented, that'd be pretty good. That'd be actually decent. And it's kind of the same when I think of these training recommendations. I'm like, you know, when you see someone that's, that just says, you know, do mainly compound movements, 10 to 20 sets, twice per week frequency, mostly 60 to 80% one rep max, you know, that's not a program. Like it's not an individual program. Like if someone said that to me after I paid for coaching, I'd be like, weird. But if that's a, a general recommendation for guidelines on the on the kind of public level, I'm like, yeah, that's actually that's pretty sound. You know, if you can if you can relay that information to people and let them kind of work with it, that's going to be much better than just going to the gym and winging it. But that's just a means of reducing uncertainty to some degree and giving us a starting starting point. But it's not the the individual level of training. And I think that this is something that we've gotten confused gotten confused with in the last let's say 10 years you know as as social media fitness has grown and it's and the the evidence-based community within that has you know increased um to essentially 
reaching more trainers and more trainers and more individuals is that everyone thinks that they are the expert now because they've read these basic guidelines um, that have been put out by people. And, you know, you essentially like wear that evidence-based badge in your chest because you're like, well, you know, I know, I know what the evidence says about these training programs. So no, I'm done. You know, I'm pretty much done now. I, I know how to create the best programs in the world. Whereas, you know, if you actually go and, and look at any like elite coach that actually coaches people who need to perform at a high level, like let's say even the elite powerlifting coaches, um, co people who coach sprinters, people who coach shot put, um, all of the greatest strength coaches. If you look at what those people do, they're like, they, they take all of that kind of advice that, that we think is like the end as like their starting point. They're like, oh yeah, we know that that's the average response from the research, but my shot put thrower who's seeking like an extra half a foot on their throw in, in the next 10 years, they need very, very specific advice. So that's where things become that bit more nuanced, where you start with your generalist starting point, and then you actually play around with things. And I think that sometimes when people are exposed to the kind of real hard evidence-based perspective, they actually lose their ability to grow as a coach because they forget that they have freedom to still be liberal in their coaching approach. Um, so like if you see the two times per week frequency is like what, what seems to be useful for most people, it doesn't mean you can't program four times per week for someone. You know, I've seen plenty of people respond much better to, especially on upper body movements, if they're doing like three, four, sometimes even five times per week frequency. Like you could, you could sustain that on bench press if you were trying to strengthen your bench and you, you'd probably do pretty well. But again, I'm not saying that that's going to be the case for you, but you have to be willing to play around with that. So what I would say is like, it's not like this, we were going to call this podcast essentially like navigating uncertainty without becoming totally nihilistic because what you don't want to end up saying is that oh nothing matters and just like tear up the rule book rule book throw out the guidelines and just do whatever you want because that's not the case you still need the guidelines you still need to know where you should start what's likely to be helpful and then you move forward so in terms of putting that into practice i think that you sh if you're a trainer listening to this you should feel comfortable starting with people at a, at a general starting point telling your clients that look this is where we're starting but we're probably going to change from this over time and then like not being fear, not being afraid to go down paths that, that might actually lead you astray. Like that's happened to me with clients before where I've said, look, I think this might work a little bit better. You know, especially like I've had some people squatting three times per week with like lots of success. And then I've had others. We've started squatting three times per week. And um, one client recently, his, his back and his hip, they were just weren't, weren't tolerating it very much. He started experiencing some more pain. So I was like, all right, look, that probably wasn't the best decision at that point in time. So reduce the volume and the intensity. The second session, change the tempo a little bit in the short term, get back to baseline, and then change our approach. And I think if you can, as a coach, with confidence, express that uncertainty to people, and they understand that you're making these decisions to see what happens, I think that'll cause people, like you said, to have more faith in you, because you're actually open and honest, as opposed to being the dictator who thinks they know the answers to everything, essentially. Yeah, you're damn right. And like you were saying earlier on, like this, this really does apply to people who like to consider themselves evidence-based because like, it, it's quite funny. Like you can see this through people viewing history, viewing politics, viewing life or whatever. Like, you know, people always say history repeats itself and that, that is extremely true, right? But what you want to see with this stuff is like strength and conditioning research, whatever you want to call this, lifting research is relatively new right we'll say it's only really taken off in the last 20 years 
right? Since the 1990s. Before that, there was a lot of endurance stuff. You know, that was seemed to have been the, the research focus, but this kind of lifting weights and I'm almost going to say it's like a powerlifting focus has really come to, to come to bear in the, the or in the research in the last kind of 20 years. Well, actually say the last 30 years, the 1990s, roughly then, right? So it's a relatively new science, right? But you can actually see the exact same things that are happening now with this, this field of science. They're the exact same things that have happened with the nutrition sphere. Because everyone always thinks like nutrition is oh, it's settled science. We, we know all the stuff we need to know. But they actually forget that the, the recommendations that are being put out, they forget what they're actually supposed to do. And they take them as the be all and end all. For example, like all the micronutrient stuff, right? People will say like, oh, there's your, your recommended daily allowance, you know? Like they forget that that, that isn't the, the, the amount you're supposed to hit. People are like, oh, I hit my 100% on that. It's like, that's, that's the amount needed to prevent deficiency in roughly 95% of the population, right? So first of all, we're already coming at it with the assumption that 5% of the population, their needs aren't going to be met with those recommendations, right? Because like, it's impossible to give recommendations that suit everyone, right? But also it's come to it that those recommendations are also to prevent deficiency. So you're not going to die if you hit those levels, right? And that's, that's where those recommendations come from, right? It's not optimal. Like that's not, they weren't trying to find the, the exact amount that was optimal, right? They're just going like, like here's a population-wide uh, DRI or RDA or whatever. And that's, that's, that's good. That's going to prevent people dropping down in the streets, dying, because they didn't have enough, I don't know, vitamin D or something, <laughs> you know? Um, so that, that's where they came from. And we kind of take them as gospel in terms of they're like, oh, that's all I need to hit. Well, we don't. <laughs> but like the, the general population kind of takes it as gospel. It's like, that's all you need to hit. You just need to get your 100%, right? And then you also factor in that, like you said earlier on with the nutrition stuff, people still aren't actually following the advice given, right? And this is, I think is, very appropriate to the training side of things. Again, like you're saying, like you become a nihilist where you're like, oh, it doesn't matter. I'll just throw it through a book. Fuck it, you know? Like there, there still are some good guidelines. Like for example, what I mean is something like 10% of students are vitamin C deficient. Like they have subclinical scurvy, 10% of students. So if you're a student, like literally one in 10 of your friends has scurvy right like that's fucked up when you think of like you read your history books and you're like all oh, pirates you know sailors scurvy ha 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 one in ten people if you're a student has scurvy well kind of has scurvy right and that's because they don't actually eat enough fruit and veg right they're not getting enough vitamin c from their diet okay so first of all people aren't hitting the the requirements that they're supposed to hit right and this again applies to the training sphere because you know you get this nihilistic thing where you're like, oh well, if if these RDAs are irrelevant, like they're not actually optimal, then it doesn't really matter. Like I'll just hit the hit the the bare minimums and call it good. Ah, some days if I don't hit the bare minimums, it's still good. Like it, it's it's all irrelevant at the end of the day because they're not perfect. Like we don't have the the perfect diet structure, the diet plan, so. Eh, I'm just going to throw out the rule book and do whatever the fuck I like, you know? And 
this is again the same in the, the training sphere because people will throw out that rule book and go, yeah, of course I, I can train like 12 times per week. You know, I can do X, Y, and Z volume. And like they literally just, and nothing matters. So I'm just going to do whatever the fuck I want to do because nothing matters. And it's like this, the, if you look at a 10 to 20 sets per week recommendation, that's kind of like a 95% confidence interval. Like that's like this 10 to 20 sets is probably going to work for about 95% of the people. You know, it's probably going to work relatively well. It may not be optimal, but it's going to ensure that you are progressing in some manner. You know, you're not, you're not getting worse. Okay. Uh, And then you can go, okay, well there probably is roughly, we'll say 5% that either need less volume or more volume. Right. And as long as you're kind of staying within that framework, but keeping that kind of liberal view, like you were saying, where you're kind of like, okay, we're going to try out the 10 to 20 sets. We're going to see how you respond on that. And then we're going to just try tweaking a few variables. Maybe it is like, I actually think this, this conversation is easier to see in terms of movement selection, because there's a lot more variability there and you can kind of see like, okay, so if we change the movement, if we find a movement that you really respond very well to, like that changes all the recommendations you know finding a movement that is perfect quote-unquote perfect for your body like that's going to change the recommendations like if you're you if you have to do we'll say 10 sets per week to adequately target your legs based on the movements you have available to you right but then you get you move gym you get i don't know access to a hack squat machine that literally just lights up every single fiber of your quads you know and you just feel everything perfectly. You get the sickest pump, you know, it's perfect for you. It just fits your mechanics beautifully, right? That's going to change your overall volume recommendations. You know, that's not to say that you have to change them, but the fact that you're now stimulating the muscles you're trying to stimulate in a much better fashion is obviously going to change how much volume you have to do. Like if you had to do 10 sets because, you know, you just weren't really adequately stimulating them enough with the movements you had available, you know, maybe now you can get away with three sets because the, the movement is just absolutely perfect. That doesn't mean that you have to, you know, maybe you still do your 10 sets, but you just stick to that movement and you just absolutely milk it for all it's worth. But it does change the overall recommendations, you know? So again, I'm just kind of rambling here, but I think looking at it with the, the, the view that we are essentially repeating history now with this discussion of training because this has already been repeated or it's already been done with nutrition like you were just looking for baseline recommendations going like how can we prevent deficiency in the population we found them and for the last like that was we'll say that kind of finished up in the 1920s like obviously it still continued like we still found different vitamins and minerals and whatever else since then but we'll say the 1920s so for the last hundred years we've basically been using the principle of, oh, we found the the baseline recommendations. So that's it. We're done, boys. You know, when it's like that, we didn't actually find optimal, right? And that's, again, what we're kind of doing with the the research at the moment. Like people are like, oh, 10 to 20 sets, we're good to go. Like that doesn't mean that that's optimal for the individual. You know, we still individualize that general recommendation. Yeah, and I suppose like it's important as well to, I guess, qualify exactly like who who we're talking about when we say like the evidence based people. Like generally, it's it's not the researchers. Like generally, researchers are just like 
look, this is kind of what we found, like, and this might have implications for coaches. It's generally the people that read the research and then kind of talk about it on social media that make it sound far more certain than it actually is. So that's important to keep in mind, especially if you're someone who reads research, is that most of the time, like, it's really important to take into consideration how researchers are phrasing things. Very often they are very uncertain about what they're actually advising and they'll give lots of limitations. Like almost every research paper will have a limitation section, but people often just kind of gloss over that because once you see the conclusion, the first line of the conclusion, it's like, oh yes, I have the answer. Whereas that's often not the case. And I think like yeah, there's Mike, a big part of you there. Yeah, like speaking to researchers is the most frustrating thing ever because they basically just sit on the fence with everything. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, like I kinda would maybe somewhat recommend this, but you have to take into account that maybe somewhat kind of this other thing. And you're like, yeah. I just want to know like should I do 10 sets or should I do 20 sets? Like just I just want to know a figure. Give me a number at least so I can start. You know? So yeah, researchers they're frustrating as fuck to talk to. But anyway, go on. Yeah, which is a good thing if you know how to put that into practice. Like if you if you listen to this podcast and you're like, oh, I actually get why they were uncertain, then then it makes it makes a lot of sense. Because I suppose like the other thing is that sometimes what can happen is that you'll read something like uh, a meta-analysis, which is supposed to be really strong evidence, you know, like really strong evidence uh, that the top of the evidence-based pyramid, and you're supposed to get the perfect answers from that. And there's a good example of this, like. In, in like rehab literature, there's some there's there's a meta analysis on um, like strength training for injury risk reduction, and in that in that meta analysis, if you actually look through the individual studies, you see that a lot of these were kind of Nordic hamstring curl specifically like eccentric training in soccer players, in which like we already know that that exercise is, is beneficial for reducing injury. So it's like all right, you've t we have a population of soccer players, very specific population. We have a specific injury, which is hamstring injury, that we know is prevalent in that population. And we have a specific exercise that we know is, is useful in that population already. So when we then begin to extrapolate from that and say that, uh, oh, you know, strength training it definitely reduces injury risk reduction by this much, and we're this certain about it, we can't generalize that to every exercise. I mean, that's something that is totally against my bias. So it's important to pick up on those things when you're reading research because for me, I could just look at that research and be like, oh, yeah, savage. Like, strength training is just the answer. It's the panacea. You know, it's going to be the game changer for everything. And to some degree, like, that's actually true, but not totally. And I think that that's just a good example of why you need to actually read the methods section of research papers, which makes the process really boring and arduous, but you kind of need to do it if you want to get the full context. So, if you're not doing that and you're someone that's taking away kind of evidence-based snippets, I would be additionally uncertain when I'm trying to put those things um, into practice. So like, like that's, that's when you're pooling all the results together. Like even when you're looking at individual trials, like research studies that are like, you know, generally what people will do is they'll qualify a, what's called a PICO. And it's like population, intervention, control, and outcome. So you want to know what the population of interest actually is because if you are applying something, let's say, from a, a group of 65-year-olds to a group of 30-year-olds, then that calls for additional uncertainty because it's a different population. You know, one example of that might be 
Um, there's there's quite a bit of research on elder on elderly individuals and their ability to respond to training in like sixty kind of you know sixty five year olds around that age, but there isn't so much around like the very elderly people like 80 to 90 year olds so when you're kind of trying to apply results to that population there's a bit more uncertainty and while there's more evidence recently you still have to be like mm, i'm not sure i can extrapolate from that population to another population and like the, the clearest example of this and things that we see all the time patty when we're reading like studies that might apply to our clients is studies on untrained versus trained individuals you know if you look at studies on untrained individuals everything works you know everything works all the time like if, and it's just if you want to literally come up with some absolutely <laughs> bullshit revolutionary program they should just get 20 untrained individuals and yeah. just put them on it they'll, they'll get some results and then you can just be like my program works look this person this individual gained five kilos of muscle in a month <laughs> you know you're just like this this is just bullshit yeah <laughs> But, 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 but even in that like untrained population, I remember there was one study a while back, I think it was like on bicep growth. And what you saw in that study was like some participants had like a 59%, I think was a peak increase in muscle mass of the biceps. And then other people had like a 20%, something like that anyway, but a decrease, like there was a decrease. So when you look at the spectrum, it's like, oh, some people like had massive gains. Some people actually lost muscle. So then when you're coming at this from the perspective of like setting up your own program, it's like, who am I? You know, I don't know. Um, and, I've, and I've had that experience with clients where like you, give them, like you give them a program, they're really diligently following it for multiple months. And, you know, you go to, let's say, diet down to take a bit of fat off and see how much muscle they built. And there was actually very little progress. And you're like, like that's, that's hard as a coach because even though, I would consider, like, I, w I would read a lot of research, you know, you know what to do, you think you know the answers and stuff. There's still always going to be those cases where people just aren't responding how you'd predict they would respond, even though they might be early on and you think they're going to be good responders. So I think that's important if you're a young trainer is to realize that, like, like we're talking about this stuff, but this happens with our clients too. Like, it's not just the case that, like, oh, once you know a couple of studies or you know the general evidence base that, Every, every one of your clients is going to get perfect results like that's just not the case and and for me with clients like that it's then a case of saying look what we did didn't work so well we're going to need to change the plan of action is that okay with you you know making sure they're aware of it i just think that's super important i'm just going to get my laptop charger we chat sure. i'm going to talk anyway yeah like you see this a lot as well like not so much well you do see it as well people not getting results in terms of like obviously you get some results. Like if you're going to be resistance training, you're going to be dieting, like you're going to get some results, right? They just may not be what you expected them to be, you know? So you might be thinking like, oh, I'm going to start this new hybrid blaster 5,000 program and I'm going to gain 20 kilos of muscle over the next 20 weeks, you know? Like you might, might have been sold that and you might know an individual who that actually applied to, you know, well, maybe not that, that, to that extent, but you, you've seen people that have respond really, really well to training. And you're like, oh, I need to get on that program, right? And you'll see that. There's hyper-responders as well. So while Gary's saying like, oh, there's individuals who, you know, you don't really see the response that you expected to get, like you will also see people that get way bigger of a magnitude of response than you expected. Like, like I've had some clients that I'm kind of like, um, are you coming out of that special sauce? Yeah. Like literally you're like, what? Well, like our performance is improving weekly. You know, body composition is improving weekly. 
you know, overall muscle is improving weekly. Everything is fucking yeah. on absolute fire, you know, and you're kind of like, yeah, I'm questioning this. I mean, I coach you, you know? Uh, so there's also that, the hyper responder. What you're also going to see as yeah. well, that there are individuals that just make steady, consistent gains. They're nothing to like write home about in terms of, it's not like they're gaining like even like a kilo per month. You know, maybe they're gaining like, we'll say, 250 grams of muscle per month so nothing that you'd be like oh this is this is like you're a hyper responder but they're the individuals that just continually week on week on week on week on month on month on month just make gains like i have one client like that and like you wouldn't expect or you wouldn't think that oh we have done some absolute magical body transformation like i've been training them for a year but if you actually look at the the before and after pictures like every single week like he literally just makes consistent gains, consistent gains, consistent gains. They're not like nothing to write home about in terms of you wouldn't be like, oh, wow, like just this is unbelievable. But you're kind of like, you literally, if you just continue doing this, like in the next like three to five years, like you are going to have like a, a, an unreal physique, you know? So basically what I'm saying is there's this huge, huge variability in the response you're going to get, you know? Like some individuals, going to be hyper responders they're just going to pack on muscle just by smelling the weights you know and there's going to be some individuals that literally you try to design the most perfect program and they lose muscle you know or you do one diet manipulation and it looks like they in their life you know so there is that response and again this is why you start off with that kind of general approach where you're kind of like look the best research whatever variable it is you know the best research says 10 to 20 sets per muscle roughly you know we'll, we'll, we'll start there we'll see how response is we'll say we just split it in the middle we do 15 we do 15 sets we'll see how you are on that oh you're progressing nicely cool let's keep it at that are you not really progressing well let's try a higher volume approach let's try the 20 sets you know some muscles are responding nicely some aren't let's try the 20 sets for these muscles that aren't responding okay actually i think you know performance is actually going down a little bit you know pain markers in certain muscle groups are getting you know higher they're being overloaded in like again like your lower back or your shoulders or something like that and you go okay let's try the lower volume approach and you see okay now actually we're making nice consistent gains perfect let's just stay on this and milk it for all it's worth so i think that looking at this stuff and kind of going look this is our best bet let's just try play around within this and then see how you respond and then if you're not responding on either end of that variability range, that kind of 10 to 20 sets, then maybe you could start considering yourself to be an outlier. And maybe you do need higher volume or lower volume or whatever, you know, but this is obviously all assuming that your technique is perfect. Your movement selection is perfect. And all the other variables are looked after. So this is again, why it starts getting really, really hard because you essentially are just playing a game of pick and choose you're like which variable am i going to manipulate now and assess the response to you know like we would always obviously always say like getting your your movement selection correct getting your 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 tempo your technique or whatever the fuck you want to call it whatever variables that are around like that kind of technique aspect once you get those locked down like then you can start thinking about volume and whatever else but like ultimately i always think it comes back to the individual rep with training essentially training is just multiple reps done correctly you know so if you get each rep quote unquote perfect 
that is what adds up over time. It, like this whole discussion of reps and set schemes and whatever else, like it's completely irrelevant unless the individual rep itself is bang on, you know? So like there is obviously a hierarchy of where you look in terms of the, the inputs. Um, but at, at the end of the day, like I do realize that as a beginner trainee or as a beginner trainer, like you, you essentially don't know everything. So you're kind of left going, let's just trial this one out. I think this variable change makes sense. Let's see how that impacts the, the results, you know? Yes, sir. And I think where this gets even more complicated and more difficult to navigate for trainers is in the area of pain. Because like realistically, although it's the case that oh yeah, beyond your scope of practice, you know, you shouldn't be dealing with people in pain. It's like, let's be realistic about this. Most personal trainers have at least one, if not a handful of clients who have pain somewhere. It's part of the human experience. It's going to happen, especially when you're working with the typical kind of personal training population of like, let's say you're, you know, 30 to 60 year old kind of professionals or stay-at-home mothers or you know whatever it is you know they're they're the types of people that people end up working with they're people who do have other things going on in life people who have multiple other risk factors for experiencing pain um so when you're working with that population of people in pain you definitely do not want to be the guy who's like the guy or girl who's like yeah gonna fix you no problem just gotta do this rotator cuff exercise just gotta you know stretch those hip flexors and then you'll be fine because like pain, whatever about training responses and whatever about like fat loss, pain outcomes are definitely far more difficult to predict because you just cannot control everything. Like you are not, you're not able to control the fact that some people are simply at a higher risk of having persistent pain because of specific genetic markers, because of specific psychological traits, um, social factors, how they, how, how they were given pain education as they grew up, how they saw their parents respond to pain, what their culture believes about pain. Like all of those things are just act as this big complicated matrix that affects that person's outcomes, their likelihood of recovering from pain or developing persistent pain. And that's before you even get to things like, you know, at the tissue level, if, depending on the type of injury and all this sort of stuff. So It's a really complicated pain when they come to you. You certainly do not want to be the person who's just like, yep, I've got the solution, this one weird trick, this stretch, this exercise, this program. And like, I, like I would love to be able to deliver, deliver, to deliver that information to personal trainers because like sometimes I think, I think sometimes like when you dig into the rehab research a little bit, you think that you get quick answers because you're like, oh, exercise seems to help everyone in pain like it's very consistent across the research but then you actually like look into individual responses and you look at who who develops chronic pain and stuff like this and it's like well this is a bit messier especially when it comes to guidelines because when when you see those guidelines like that we have for like let's say hypertrophy or strength training you just don't really have those for people who have persistent pain and you often see that you know general activity is just as effective as specific activity so acting with any degree of certainty in that context is just really problematic. So especially as a personal trainer, what I would say is that if you're working with people in pain and you're trying to give them advice, I would definitely keep it general and I would focus on like 
supporting the person through that journey and like like giving them the social support they need as opposed to trying to be like just do these exercises you know check in on the person see how see how they're coping see how other things in life are you know stress sleep um their family life their work life etc discuss those things as opposed to just trying to give them that that one answer because it's just not how it works like we work with some people online who 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 experience pain and like in particular i tend to take the people who have had like persistent pain over longer periods of time and like there's there was one client she had pain for quite a while back pain persistent pain you know lots of the things that we've talked about in our podcast in relation to like fear of movement um avoidance of meaningful activity avoidance of like important social events etc etc like pain was really like a problem in her life um and like that was not a case of her signing up and me being like, oh yeah, I've got the back rehab protocol for you. Like the McGill big three or whatever. Like, like we just, it's just not a thing. You know, in her case, it was like over multiple months of, of getting a little bit better, getting a little bit worse, you know, having flare ups coming back down, you know, improving slightly, slightly, slightly over time. We got back to doing the things that she wanted to be able to do. But at the same time, there's still residual factors left over that you wouldn't recognize if you were just focused on giving specific exercises in that, like it's about, it's, it's well over a year since we started working together and like still doing heavier squats is a barrier because there's that immediate, like kind of hypervigilance, like, Oh, you know, Oh my back, I might hurt my back. If I do this exercise, this is where I've always had the most problems. So I'm, I'm hypervigilant, worried about this exercise, worried about progressing. So it's a common feature week on week, month on month that we still just keep working on. And the fact that the fact that she knew from the start, this was a long-term journey. And the fact that she knew that I wasn't just saying, we're going to fix this is actually easier to keep that going in the long term. So I think you actually make things more difficult for yourself as a trainer if you try to have all the answers for someone in pain because you actually close the door to that being an ongoing conversation going into the future, which is really, really important, especially with persistent long-term pain. Yeah, and I think this does talk to the fact or the same thing that we talk about all the time. Like you're not, you can't just isolate one of these things. You can't just isolate training. You can't just isolate you know, nutrition. You can't just isolate psychology. Like it, it is the whole human experience, right? Like it's, it's multifactorial. And I know you like to say that the bio, biopsychosocial model, even though I don't agree with it. But anyway, um, it almost be taken into account. You know, like you, you do have to look at this as a, a holistic thing. And like obviously that the word holistic gets kind of butchered and gets bandied around and used by we'll call them alternative coaches or whatever. But you do have to look at the, the whole individual in front of you you know like you're talking about pain here but like that is there's so many factors that go into that that just looking at it from like oh i've got this one weird exercise that'll fix your back it's like that like i don't understand how you can have that thought process well actually i do understand because i've had the thought process but what i mean is i don't understand you can how you can have that thought process long term because undoubtedly you're going to encounter a client that you do this one weird trick and it just doesn't work. So like if that's your entire framework, like where the fuck do you go? Like, like you're lost then, you know, like your, your one weird trick didn't work. Like what do you do? Just more of it, less of it. Like, where do you go from that? So again, like I think it comes down to, especially with the pain stuff, like 
first of all, understanding that it is a multifactorial process. Second of all, understanding that, you know, some of this may be outside of your wheelhouse, right? If you are a trainer, also a trainee, you know, but also understanding that just because it's outside of your wheelhouse doesn't mean that you have no control over some variables, you know, like you still have control over how you approach lifting, how you, like your movement selection, your, your overall volume, your overall lifestyle, your overall psychology. Like obviously you have control over some of the variables that go into those things. You know, like if you understand that, oh yeah, my back pain is way worse when I'm highly stressed and don't have sleep. It's like, okay, so if there's going to be periods of time where that's the case, like maybe we do back off with the, the lifting for those periods of time if you know that that also contributes to your pain you know or maybe you go okay so if we know that you're going to be in a high high stress environment then let's try really hammer getting sleep perfected during that period of time so that's not another variable acting into this whole thing you know so you you start figuring these things out as you progress with an individual because while yes there is obviously these general guidelines like you still have to factor in that individual response but also the individual person in in front of you like the fact that there are multiple things going into this and i think it's very important what you said about not viewing this as a a kind of linear process like oh we're going to do these things and we're going to see progress 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 right like you're saying like you always take on well always but the majority of the time take on clients that uh have like you know chronic uh, persistent pain like i generally take on people that have like eating disorders as well but like you see this as well in that kind of sphere as well um not that i'm an eating disorder coach don't want like if you have an eating disorder go get get help get real healthy <laughs> um but i generally seem to seem to get those people and uh it's the same case with those like sometimes you're gonna have months where you're literally just absolutely nailing nutrition your your mentality around your body around your performance around all the variables whatever you're bang on point and then you're going to have a really hard week with you know college work school whatever the fuck and then all these thought processes that you had when you did have a eating disorder you know they start creeping back in and it's like you if, if you come to that approach thinking that you've defeated this issue you know and that you've just had this linear progress and there's never going to be these little dips down you can kind of feel a little bit, I'm going to say betrayed, but uh, lost, you know, because you're kind of like, oh, well, shit, I thought this was a linear process. If this is not a linear process, then, oh, fuck, like, I, like oh, shit, like, wh- where do I go from here now? You know, is this always going to be something that I'm dealing with? You know, whereas if you take it as a process that, you know, there are going to be ups and downs and, you know, some weeks are going to be better than others, some weeks are going to be worse, and that you actually realize that there is this human experience, then you kind of look at things and kind of go, okay, so yeah, this is a bad week, you know, things aren't perfect, you know, some of these disordered thoughts are coming back into my head, or, you know, maybe pain is back a little bit. If you can think of that kind of going, well, we are still making progress over the bigger picture. I think that is a a much better approach overall to to look at these things. And it kind of goes back to this, this this whole discussion that we're having, that essentially having this nihilistic view where nothing matters you know, it's like, that. where does that lead you down, down the line? Like, where do you go from there? If nothing matters, then you have control over nothing, you know? So you might as well not even try. And this is the whole issue with nihilism. Like, we can talk about Nietzsche or whatever if you want. But, like, Nietzsche, like, talked about nihilism. Like, he's obviously often attributed with the, the, 
the I don't know bringing of nihilism to the fore. But again, it's always hard to attribute him with creating nihilism, or is he just the first one, like the first one to really discuss it in depth? You know, like it could have been a thought process for years, you know, before before he ever discussed it. But also, if you actually look at what he was saying when he was discussing it, like he he's the one that you know declared the death of God. But essentially, what he said with that was, you know, we have killed God, and what he wanted to say, like what he did say after that, if you interpret it well, the way I interpret it anyway, he's like, we must become gods, you know? So like that, that's what he wanted. He didn't want this nihilistic thing where it's like, oh yeah, we've killed God. All of these quote unquote gods that we have, like these scientific research studies and whatever else, uh, we'll just kill them because they're not perfect. They, they're not whatever. Like, the goal is to become a God, you know, you yourself to become a God. And that means that you yourself take the responsibility. You yourself look at that individual response. You yourself are the one that has the key to your future. Now, obviously, that doesn't apply in every single fucking circumstance. Because I know whenever you talk philosophy, everyone always has this uncle's father's nephew's thing that was in the fucking gulag or something that, you know, how are they supposed to take responsibility for their life? But at the same time, it's like, if we're going to talk about outliers, we can talk about outliers all day long because, you know, that's an interesting discussion. But again, we're talking about generalities. And at the end of the day, I always think like having more control over your future is a better place to be than saying that the, the future is unknown. So fuck it, whatever I do in the present is irrelevant. You know, like obviously you can't, inter- you can't predict the outcome. Like this is, this is again, what this whole discussion is, you know, you can't predict the outcome. The only thing you have control over is the inputs. So you can do all of the things that are likely to influence the outcome in the quote unquote positive direction that you want, you know, but you still have control over the inputs at this moment in time. Yeah. And I think, I think that's actually an interesting point because that, I think that's where we get a bit too far away from anecdotal evidence sometimes because like what, what, what the evidence-based perspective has essentially led to is people totally disregarding anecdotes and kind of ignoring, in a sense, how they're actually responding to something. Whereas you actually, you need that. As in like, if you, you take your evidence-based perspective from the generalized literature, you apply it in, a, in a, an individual, and then you measure individual responses, and then you allow that to be a feedback mechanism for changes that you make in the future. So you can actually use anecdotal evidence, like and n equals one, but the prop like the, the the problem that people point out about anecdotal evidence isn't that it doesn't exist. It's that you have to be cap- careful about making inferences from it. Like you can't just say that. Like let's say you did do something. Like you implement. Let's say you implement the generalized hypertrophy guidelines that people might put out, and then you have a certain response. You can't infer from that response that the entirety of this response was the result of this one training variable. You, like you can't do that. Like that's where it becomes problematic, and that's that's what you often see when it comes to anecdotal evidence is that people will have a certain response to something, then they'll attribute it to let's say the fact that carbohydrates were lowered in the diet without looking at the other inputs that went into that. To so the fact the fact that someone was exercising, the fact that overall calories were reduced, protein was increased, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All the stuff that you guys know matter. So when you're when you're you can use anecdotal evidence, like you can use the n equals one but you do it to measure responses and to essentially test things over time without trying to create like 
that one belief system that everyone then needs to follow because you recognize that it is an N equals one. So I think you, you can definitely blend um, like having an, an evidence-based, science-based perspective and self-experimentation to some degree once you're not then extrapolating backwards in the opposite direction to say that my self-experimentation can inform my guidelines for everyone else because that's really where, where this com- becomes problematic. So again, like everything we've discussed ever on the podcast, there's a balance that you have to strike. You know, you have to consider how things work on the general population um, population within a research study, that perspective. You know, but you also have to consider the self-experimentation aspect and what outcomes are actually happening in the real world for your N equals one who is paying you as a trainer. You know, that's, that's who's ultimately buying your services is someone who is a single individual. So it is important to strike that balance. Yeah, like I think the, the real issue with all the anecdotal evidence is, well, it's twofold. First of all, most of the time, all the variables aren't controlled, right? Yeah. Like obviously that can be said about research studies as well. Like obviously, like you see all these training research studies and they don't control for diet, you know? And it's like, okay, well, like these, these individuals lost five kilos, like you have like a control population and they lost five kilos over the time period. And then you'll have like, the training population and they gain five kilos. So you're already looking at that going like, okay, there was a difference in energy balance during that time period. And you're like, are the results attributed to the training program or the, the, the change in the diet that, you know, per, pretty obviously, well, you would presume from that study that the, the increase in training made them hungrier. So they ate more, you know, but like, that's what the study actually found rather than the resistance training causes muscle growth you know it's like the resistance training causes changes in appetite and changes in appetite influence energy intake and energy intake influences body composition you know so it's like well what did we actually really find out from this study you know so obviously studies fall victim to this as well and again this is why you'll see a lot of studies that are like oh further research is warranted in this here are the limitations of this study you know like they'll, they'll generally especially if they're good researchers will say that this was just kind of a pilot study. This was just to kind of start getting a feel for this overall stuff. And, you know, maybe it was to get further funding in the future so that they could do, I don't know, metabolic ward studies with resistance training, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, but this is the issue with the anecdotal stuff. Like the, all the variables won't be controlled, you know, that's the first thing. So you could be like, Oh yeah, I started doing 20 sets per week. or started doing 30 sets per week and my results just absolutely skyrocketed. I was gaining, absolute tons of muscle and it's like oh did any other variables change and you're like well yeah i started sleeping 10 hours per night and you know i actually won the lotto as well so i actually didn't have any stress in my life anymore because i just bought this mansion and i just trained there whenever the fuck i want and you know i actually increased my protein intake from 0.8 grams per kilo to 1.5 or 2 grams per kilo or whatever the fuck you know it's like okay like there's so many variables going on that I can't like you can't say it was the 30 sets that did this you know so that's that's the problem with the individual response but also there's no population like you were saying like there's no generality to it like that could all of that could be attributed to an individual response like you you don't know if you don't have a a population you know you could just be as an individual you'd be like all right I'm going to do 30 sets and you just get absolutely unreal results and you didn't change any of the other variables you're like okay I controlled for the other variables I did 30 sets and I got unreal response. And that obviously means that 30 sets is optimal. You know, it's like, okay, maybe 30 sets is optimal for you, 
as an individual, but because we have no population like that did the 30 cents, we, we can't say that that's a, a population-wide result. That's an individual response. For all I know, you're a hyper-responder to that stuff. You're just a hyper-responder to oh, like higher volumes. You know, that's, that's you as an individual. So you can take that and go, okay, cool, I'm going to run with that. But that's not something that should inform the, the general discussion. You know? However, the, like you were saying, like you don't want, basically what you don't want to do is interpret that individual response backwards and then say like this is a, a population response but also that's actually what we we care about you know as an individual like that's that's yeah. that's how we refine our process like if you are looking at the general stuff and then you go and that's all you take like you've you've committed the exact same scientific crime or whatever you want to call it you know the individual who's trying to read like bring it backwards and go oh this is the general stuff like that's clearly wrong but looking at the general stuff and then completely ignoring this anecdotal individual response like that again you're committing the same crime you're forgetting that there's this crosstalk between those two points that needs to occur to actually inform the decision of a personal trainer or a trainee you know when they're kind of looking at that individual and going yeah okay cool we actually increased volume and you've got a great response so let's run with that like at the end of the day like if you are being paid or you're paying someone you know that that's or even if you're just training yourself like that's the kind of stuff you need to look at you need to look at that individual response like maybe you know this again like when we talk about diet and we talk about training and whatever like the research itself is only meant to inform our decisions then it has to be individualized you know and that's that's where the art of coaching comes in where you're like okay well the research says this but you know yeah refeeds will say don't mean fucking diddly squat over a day but if i give you a, a refeed once per week you know you actually adhere to your diet much better because you know there's a, a day of higher calorie intake. And while it's not doing much physiologically, you know, for you, it actually allows you to adhere to your diet better. So that's a win, you know, and that's, that's the kind of individualizing, you know, where it's like, okay, this is what the research says about this topic. What, how does the individual respond to this topic? You know, obviously it's extremely hard to like, I don't want people to come away from this podcast and think like, like that again, like that kind of nihilistic thing where it's like, Jesus Christ, there's so many variables to consider, and I'm not really sure which which ones to start with, and uh, I'm basically just going to try everything or try nothing, you know. So I, like, I don't want you to come away from that response. Like, I want you to come away from this podcast and think, okay, these are our best bet guidelines. This is where we start. Like, this is where we start for everyone. We start in this generalized approach. We know from the research, we know from you know, maybe your own anecdotal experience that these variables, when manipulated this way, work for a lot of people. You know, whether that's 10 to 20 sets per week, we'll just say that. We know, we know that works for a lot of people. That's where you start. And then from that, you play around with the variables once results aren't occurring in a manner that you deem adequate, right? But if results are occurring, then fucking roll, roll with it. You know, like this, like, I don't want people to come away from this and think like, oh, there's, there's, there is an optimal, you know, that I must chase. Like, yes, there is more and more and more and more and more optimal, but it, it, you're never going to get that 100% optimal, you know? And while chasing it is somewhat of a good idea, like chasing the 100% is not a good idea. Chasing better 
is a good idea, you know? So it should be small refinements over time that are made. You know, it shouldn't be every four weeks, you're completely switching up your program, changing these variables and going, oh, look, this month we didn't really get results. So fucking now we're on super high volume and all oh, that didn't work. So next month we're on super low volume because you have to remember that training is the accumulation of, of training. Like the results from training are the accumulation from the training you've done. So you're actually bringing in more variables now by changing really frequently, not only by virtue of changing really frequently, but also because yeah, you don't know now it's because, was it because you did a high volume block and then a low volume block that led to the results? Or was it because you did, did it the opposite way around? Or, you know, like you've changed too many variables too quick so that you can't actually accurately assess the results as a result, you know? Yeah, and, and I kind of touched on it already, but the, the self-experimentation thing and you're, you're, you're using your own results and extrapolating from them is something you have to be really careful about, not just because, like, it's not good practice, but also because it's incredibly tempting. And you see this all the time with diet. Like, there's, there's pretty much a cult in the UK of doctors who identify as low-carb doctors. Like they're medical doctors, like they're not nutritionists or dietitians or anything, but they'll identify as like, I practice low-carb medicine. Like that's what I am. I'm a low-carb doctor. That's my thing. And when you actually look into what they, where it comes from, it's very often it's because I followed the establishment's advice and then I actually had success with fat loss when I did the ketogenic diet or the low-carb diet. So immediately it's like you've got all of this evidence that is right in front of you because it's like I've seen it in the mirror. I've seen what it's looked like. It looks like in the plate. I've experienced what it what it felt like li living in that body at that point in time and seeing the changes over time. So you've got all this evidence that's in front of you that you're living in, living with, whatever, <laughs> every day, and then you 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 assume that like, oh, well, that's clearly the secret because I've experienced it. Like I've not just read it in a research paper. I've actually experienced those changes. And when that happens to you, it's clearly very tempting to extrapolate from that and use it for everyone else. It's the same with it's the same with training. Like it's the same with training. If you follow the a high volume training program and it, it got you with the results, it got you results for the first time in years, then you immediately have this evidence in front of you and you're thinking, oh, that's what I gotta do for all my clients who aren't getting results. So I think that's the area that you have to be super careful with because that's the easiest trap to fall into, is assuming that because you had a certain outcome, that, that everyone else then needs to do that. It's the same with things like sleep. You might you might find that you know what, uh, I'm actually feeling super on six hours of sleep per night. And there are certain people, very rare, but certain people that will feel great after six hours of sleep per night. But it's not most people. So if you then extrapolate from that and assume that you can apply that to your clients, that's going to lead them astray. So, so that's an area you have to be especially careful of because like, if you've read any, any, anything on like cognitive biases, the work of Daniel Kahneman or anyone like that, you'll be very aware that like, we're not as rational and clear thinking as we think we are. You know, we all have biases, regardless of, of how much of a clear thinker you think you are. Like you, your thoughts are confounded by lots of things that you're not aware of. So if you become aware of them, that's obviously helpful. But you can't just think that you found the one answer because something worked for you. Because as we discussed, there's far too many variables that go into these things and you can't just apply it to everyone. Yeah, which is really hard to 
you accurately do like i always say to you and it's almost half joking but like you always say it back to me as well like i have a way a way incorrect ability to understand what is strong right because of the environment that i grew up in like i literally i've been in a gym environment we'll say since i was 14 you know um like i've had a gym or sorry i've had a job related to being in the gym since i was 14 right so like my response to that and obviously like again like the, the area that i live in you know uh there'd be quite a lot of like steroid users so like my response as like a, a a teenager going into that like i just assumed that this was normal that these people were able to lift these kind of heavy weights that the, the progress that they were able to get from just training was x you know and that was just my assumption so like my entire bias of what is strong is so skewed in terms of the, the, the strength level. Like I, people would be like, oh, like a hundred kilo bench, that's good for an 80 kilo male or whatever. Like I'd be like, that's awful. 180 kilos, 180 kilos, that'd be good. Like I'd be like, you know, like benching at least four plates, that, that's good, you know, in my eyes. And I, like I know that that's completely skewed, you know? <laughs> like, like I don't even see it as, I'm like, yeah, it's just normal. You know, but like, because I know that I have that bias, because I know that that's a thought process that I have, like I can go then, or I can then look at other people's training and go, yeah, no, I can see why you would think that that's a good response. And obviously we still have to couch that in the, the, the ability that you have as an individual to actually gain strength in a specific movement, you know, but like, I, I think like using purely your own experiences uh, as a marker for the desired outcome, whatever, like it's just a foolhardy thing to do in life in general. Like if you just use yeah. your own experiences, like man, you can be led down some fucking pretty stupid pathways, you know, it's especially true in the gym and in nutrition and stuff, you know, but like it's a really hard position to be in because you're always going to fall victim to a lack of knowledge, you know, like unless you have, access to the information that is we'll say quote unquote correct you know like there's always going to be some sort of biases um but unless you have access to that information man like i don't know how you make the the correct decisions you know so like it, it does come back to like our our whole ethos is like you know like empowerment through education you know that's what we're, we're trying to do and um, but it's really hard to let not let your biases you know, get in there. Like you see this all the time, like literally all the time, especially around training. Like people were like, oh, squatting is the best exercise for legs. And it's like, yeah, of course you thought that because you have these little tiny femurs and this completely perfectly upright squat and you just get like perfect quad stimulus, perfect, <coughs> you just have perfect mechanics for squatting. And you just get this unreal response from it. So of course you can just come to that and go, yeah, obviously everyone should squat. It's fucking the best leg builder ever, you know? But someone comes to this and they have like two meter long femurs. It's like, this is probably not going to be the best exercise for them. You know, it's, it's mainly going to be a back exercise for this other individual, you know? So it's like, you have, to, you can't use your individual experience to be your full guiding light in terms of interpreting the world. Like, yes, obviously it has to come into play, you know, like that's, that's how we inform the general decisions it's like well these individual responses 
add up to give this, you know? So the individual response has to be taken into account. We have to look at that kind of collective individual response if we want to discuss generalities. Yeah, and that example you gave is like, is an example of one of the like most kind of popular biases that people talk about, like the availability heuristic or the availability bias, where your, your, your perception of, let's say, what is normal, or your perception of what your expectations should be from the gym in terms of getting strong are affected by the examples that you have around you, what is actually available to you. In your case, in the gym, that was all of those really strong individuals in your gym. Whereas if you were to go to a gym in, let's say, like Bali, like I was in Bali last summer, and one of the gyms I went to, like I'm like, I was like 80 kilos, distinctly mediocre. Like by your standards in your gym, you'd be like, this guy is malnourished. But in that gym, when I went into that gym, like, you know, there was people looking at me like Myron being like, God, that guy's big. You know, let's, let's see what he's doing. Whereas I'm like, if I was in a gym at home, I'd be like, oh God, I'm so skinny. You know, so it is like, that prime example of that. they were saying, um, oh, I like how you, you're an example of someone that just totally breaks the stereotype of people who are strong and fit. Not that I'm claiming to be strong and fit. People who are strong and fit, you know, also being educated and being able to read and stuff. And I'm like, like to me, I'm like, is that a thing? Like, is that actually a thing? As in like, I would assume everyone that is clever would exercise and stuff because that makes sense. Like, you're not, to me, you're not educated unless you're able to act out what is what we know in the real world, you know, like that. But that's, that's, that again is an availability bias from my perspective because most of the people I would consider to be smart that I would look up to, I'm like, yeah, they obviously train. Like, why wouldn't you train? It makes no sense. So like your, your, your worldview is totally shaped by what you have available to you. And that's one of the, like, that's one of the things that's so important within the fitness industry. I tell this to all my, to all my clients who are personal trainers is to don't just follow triage, you know? And to be fair, like, I think we're more of a generalist business in general. Like a better example might be like, don't follow just powerlifters. Don't follow just endurance athletes. Don't follow just, I don't know, athletics coaches, just bodybuilders. Because what you're getting there is a, 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 a sample of all the information you have about exercise that is reduced down into this small little niche. And then if that's all you have available to you in terms of exercise, your perspective is going to be totally, you know, just like shifted towards, towards that and, and, and limited. And you, you say this, you say this all the time about how, you know, people will come up with some new practice or new idea and everyone's suddenly doing it. And it's like, oh, this is the new thing. It's cool. Like this is what's available to us at this point in time. But you always say, you know, that people were doing this a hundred years ago. Like people were doing this shit so long ago. Oh, like these exercises, these like, the toe shoes, you know, the barefoot, barefoot walking, like all these different things that seem new at certain points in time have been done in the past. And if you broaden your lens on the fitness industry, you'll begin to see that. And you'll, you won't have these like isolated biases of what should be done. And like there's a whole other world beyond just your niche on Instagram. And when you look at the way like social media works these days in terms of like filter bubbles, like you essentially get locked into, you essentially keep getting fed information that you expose yourself to. So you actually, it actually reinforces your bias technologically. And that you see that in diet cults all the time where people will, if you go into any vegan Facebook group, are you going to like join a vegan Facebook group, then join a keto Facebook group, totally like diets on the opposite end of the spectrum, you will see the same reports, the exact same reports, you know, oh, for the first time ever, 
I did the ketogenic diet. I lost weight. It was the only time I was ever successful. You know, all my uh, symptoms of brain fog and poor sleep are gone. And then you go into the vegan group and you see the exact same thing. Whereas if you're only in one group, your perspective is totally skewed, you know, because that's all you've seen. That's what's available to you. So there's a whole world beyond what you just expose yourself to. Yeah, which is, again, it's really hard, hard to get out of that whole trap because like, obviously you want to join, join a group for camaraderie, support. Like yeah. humans, like I know we, in this modern world, we hate, hate kind of, well, I don't know. Some people hate it. Some people love it. There's kind of like uh, identity politics, these like group politics. Like yeah. it's really strange in the modern world in terms of like some identities are okay to have, but other identities are not okay to have. And being in a group in certain identities is perfectly fine, but being in a group based on other identities is, oh, it's a no bueno. Um, but this is the exact same stuff that happens in the, the whole fitness sphere. Like, you know, you, you kind of get into these, essentially it's identity politics where it's like, oh, I'm the, the, the keto guy, I'm the, the vegan guy, I'm the whatever. And, you know, you, you essentially have to be pigeonholed down that way. And, like, again, it feeds forward in terms of if, if you are, you know, you're, you're trying to sell yourself, like it feeds forward if you're like able to sell down in this specific niche where you're like, I am the vegan person. So then all the vegans know that they're able to follow you because they already know the, the initial level of buy-in is there in terms of they're like, yeah, we, we are the same group. Like we're, we're, this is an in-group thing we're doing now rather than like touching on your out-group, you know? So it's a really hard thing to do to truly step back from that. And I don't think anyone realistically is able to, but at least being aware that you are in groups and there are out groups to you and being able to be aware that there are other perspectives on certain topics, certain issues, and you having enough knowledge about the, the quote unquote truth that you're able to interpret those things with some sort of scientific lens and going to go, okay, well, actually I was wrong on X, Y, and Z topics. And these people over here have a better perspective. You know, maybe they aren't hundred percent correct in their perspective, but at least you're able to kind of take that step back and go, ah, actually I was wrong on that. They're right on that. But also like, you don't want to become the person where it's like, Oh, well they were right on this one issue. So that means I'm now going to switch over to this group because like realistically, you know, a broken clock is right twice a day. You know, just because they got one thing right doesn't mean that their entire thought process is correct. You know, so again, like as I've said throughout the whole podcast, I understand that this is an incredibly hard place to be in as an individual or as a personal trainer because essentially you don't have the education to be able to decipher all this information yet, at least. You know, and essentially you're going into all of these topics somewhat blinded in terms of, you know, that there are these variables, but you don't have that experience yet to kind of know how to adjust these variables in a coherent manner. Yep. And I think that pretty much covers everything we wanted to cover. But to, to kind of summarize before we you go anywhere, like the take home point from this is a bit of a messy take home point but an important one that mightn't click now, but it'll, if you're a new trainer, might click in a year, might click in three years, might click in five. But you have to accept that uncertainty 
is part of the profession, or if you're a trainee, that it's part of you guiding yourself, you have to accept that uncertainty is part of it. And that if you can learn to not just act in the presence of uncertainty, but also like let people know that you're uncertain about things, it will make things much easier for you. Because if you try to have all the answers, you're not only going to just lead people astray at, at times, but you might also lose more respect at that point, like lose the respect of others at that point when the outcomes aren't that great than if you had just said, look, we're just trialing this. There is, I'm actually just not, I'm not a hundred percent sure that this is going to work, but let's try it. You know, because if you're constantly like, oh, I know exactly what we should do. And then someone fails and then they come back to you and you're just like, oh, well, I don't know why that failed. Like that must be your fault. Like that's, that's where things become problematic. You see that in the, in the physio world, you know, it's happened a lot in the past where if someone doesn't respond to the, the, the rehab program, you know, they're told that, oh, well, you must have a psychological problem. You go to a psychologist, you know, <laughs> like that's what happens. Because again, we try to reduce the whole of the, of the human down to isolated parts and assume that we can then predict that, you know, so you can only know so much. You can't know what's going to happen in the future, but you can at least try and use reasonable reasoning to get somewhere close. So, so they'd be, they'd be my take on points. How did you have anything else? to yeah. add it for the listener. Even as we both do JIT, like if you yeah. are a trainee or a beginner personal trainer, essentially what you have is a white belt mentality, right? But what you need to get is to a position of a blue belt, blue belt mentality, right? If you are this beginner person and you are kind of navigating this world, like don't have that white belt mentality of like, I'm going to try everything. I'm going to need to do this and I need to do this. But you're kind of just grasping at stuff that, you know, maybe it's the key, but maybe it's just inconsequential, right? And what you should essentially do if you are that kind of white belt is just follow the program, right? Yep. Look at these general guidelines and stick to them. You know, that's, that's where you should be as a white belt. Master them, you know? Like if you're talking about diet, you should know, calories protein fat carbs like the back of your hand how to manipulate those things like those are the variables that you have they need to be dialed in you know then you can start going into further more advanced strategies carb cycling all this kind of stuff but if you don't have those basics not dialed in irrelevant you're you you're grasping at straws you you don't even know what you're grasping at yet right same with training like don't be talking about these cluster sets these rest pause sets and fucking whatever else if you haven't dialed in exercise execution if you haven't dialed in you know that 10 to 20 sets like if you haven't done that stuff understood the, the very basic stuff first again you're just grasping at straws like you don't know if this thing that you've touched on is important or not right so if you're if you're in that white belt you know you you want to basically just follow the program yes you want to be actively following the program not just going like oh well X, Y, and Z person or people that I follow said this. So I'm just going to follow that blindly. No, follow it, but look into the underlying research or the underlying reasoning behind why they are saying to follow that so that you're learning all the time. You know, again, like in, in JITS, you might be like, here, here's this technique. And as a beginner, as a white belt, you're like, okay, I'm just going to execute that technique. You know, your technique is sloppy. It's not on point. You don't understand that you should actually be holding this portion of the gi rather than what you're doing here. You're trying to control the wrist here, you know? So it's like that you, you don't know all the little nuances, 
And effectively, all you have to do is keep practicing that one technique until you really start working out all those little nuances and learn the overall big picture with that technique. You know, how that flows into an actual like jujitsu conversation, a jujitsu, you know, fight uh, or a role. Um, but what you eventually want to get to is that kind of blue belt mentality where you understand the framework where you understand the positions, you understand the, the overall aims and objectives, right? So do you actually have this framework in your head because you've spent some time with the, the basics that we're talking about here with nutrition, you know, training, et cetera, and, and you understand that. And then you can start developing your specific game. You can start going like, oh, I actually, due to my body type, I should be doing this guard or I'm really good at this guard. Let me see what kind of sweeps, submissions I can get from that position, that guard. You know, how do I get, how do I have guard retention there? Like you have to figure out all those different things as a blue belt, but you've already mastered all the basics. So they're, they're the two kind of positions, the two belts that you're going to be at, you know? So if you are that beginner and you are a very beginner, not even a very beginner, but you are kind of like just beginning this whole thing, you should be looking at the general recommendations. You should be implementing them. You should be essentially just follow the program, you know? And then as you progress and you gain that experience, then you can start really understanding that, okay, I've had 10 clients and we tweak these variables and this is how they responded. I think they responded because of this, whatever it is, this explanation. Let me just try that out on a different individual. Okay, so that seems to work. Let me keep trying that out. Oh, it didn't work for this case, but actually he wasn't sleeping enough. So that should have been somewhere I should have identified first before I start tweaking that variable. You know, and you start getting this interconnected web where you're like, this is how this whole conversation happens with health, nutrition, performance, whatever. And that's how we start making this decision making tree. You know, it's like, oh, there's these variables. I know if I pull on this string, these things happen. And if I pull on this string, these things happen. But if I pull on this string and this string over here isn't tightened, nothing happens because I need to tighten this first, you know? So that's how you start developing that. And that's where you get to that kind of blue belt mentality where you have all the basics and you start refining your technique from there, refining your processes, your, your overall approach from there. Yeah, and I suppose the only final point to touch on for, for actual trainers is that, like, especially trainers who are on their own in terms of, like, being self-employed, let's say, or maybe you have your own, like, company, it, it's hard. Like, there's, there's no lying that it is hard to approach having your own business with this more objective, reasonable perspective. Like, it's something we try to do at triage in that, like, I've never heard anyone, I wouldn't like anyone to put triage in a box as the X guys. Like we're not the high carb guys. We're not the low carb guys. Like we're not the, the squat guys. Like there, there's no box that I think someone can clearly put triage into. I hope not anyway. Like that's our goal. We don't want, like I don't want anyone to recognize us for any specific thing other than potentially being reasonable in the way we talk about things. Like that's, that to me would be a goal, you know, is that like the, people would look at our business for, in terms of like, how we think about things like on a, a kind of a more general sense as opposed to any specific guideline that we give. Because to me, like that's a fool's game. Like that's a race to the bottom because you're going to change eventually. And then you have to go through that whole rigmarole of like undoing everything you've ever said, changing the name of your business, <laughs> et cetera, because you no longer want to be 
low carb jazz or whatever, you know, um, or I don't know, like, uh, do you always want to be skinny? Do you always want to be skinny? <laughs> always want to be, oh shit. <laughs> I'll play, play it myself. Um, but yeah, no, like I appreciate it. It's really hard for, for trainers because you essentially have to come into a business or, or into an industry that really is about everyone trying to stand out and sell themselves. And you want to come in in year one and be like, yeah, well, I'm actually, like I've never coached anyone, but I don't have anything I'm particularly good at. So <laughs> hire me. I don't have a solution for that. Like I just don't, not at this point in time. Maybe we'll do a separate, like, specific podcast for personal trainers or something i don't have a solution to that but i think looking at things from a long-term perspective like you said i think jiu-jitsu is a good example recognize that you are a white belt that like you can't just you can't just like pretend to be to be a black belt in jiu-jitsu it doesn't work the same thing in personal training like you can you can pretend that you are you know the expert that knows all the answers and that might work for your first hundred clients and that all people will come to you because you're kind of faking it but you'll get like you'll get kind of fished out eventually. It's not going to work for a long time. So play the long game, get known for being reasonable, for being, you know, science-based, for having a solid thought process, for being uncertain, for being honest. Um, and I think people will have more trust in you in the long term. Very, you're a smart boy. I hope so. Um, yeah, so just to wrap this up, we released our ebook. You know, two weeks ago now, I don't know, whatever the fuck. It's got all the, the all, all the answers. The all perfect program. Answers. No, like it literally is a good starting point. If you are, yeah. yeah, well, if you are a trainer as well, it is a good starting point because it kind of does give those Definitely. general recommendations. But mainly I was kind of writing it with the perspective that this is for beginners to the gym, you know, like you training yourself, you know, like obviously as a trainer, like it's going to have our recommendations for training someone like that. So if you are a trainer, like obviously it's going to be yeah. helpful. You know, um, but basically, this is going to be a well, it is a book that will help an individual that's just getting into the gym, just wants to get better, fitter, healthier, etc. You know, understand nutrition, understand training, you're good to go, right? And we also, as you may have seen, I know we've had a lot of clicks onto our website, um, like uh, the what was the militia is now not the militia and it's all just free content and again as we said before like the reason behind this is that we do have that ethos of empowerment through education and quite frankly like i hate when you go to try get some scientific research paper and there's a paywall and yep. like obviously there's ways around that gary discussed them like i'm in college so i can literally just get it through my college in most instances so it's not not an issue and um, but I hate the fact that that research is behind the paywall. You know, that, that information is behind the paywall, especially because essentially scientific research has a triple pay system. So like if you, if you get research that's done in Ireland or whatever, like technically speaking, you already paid for it because you pay your taxes and the government gave money for that research study to be done. And the government also kind of pays the researchers to do the research. So anyway, there's a triple pay system, which is kind of fucked up. But anyway, you basically paid for that little unit of information three times already. So paying for it a fourth time to me is just a taxation without representation. And that's just not freedom. Um, but that is essentially why we want to or wanted to make the, the militia free and just produce free content 
like like that's ultimately our end goal is to empower individuals through education so the only way we can do that is to give you as a little barrier to that education as possible you know so that is why all the articles are free and you can find them by clicking on the links that goes to our website in the in the description and other than that we do still have spots for online coaching we do definitely still have places in the group coaching because that's something that like we like there's not a huge buy-in because you could essentially just join it for one month and be like yeah look i didn't enjoy that wasn't what i wanted you can just get out of it then like there's no big commitment to it you know and but that is something that we really want to push over the next couple of weeks couple of months because i know a lot of people want some sort of program structure but don't necessarily need one-to-one coaching you know And, and that's effectively why we created that group coaching because it's for the people that you know they want some structure they want some guidance but they don't necessarily have a very specific goal that they need to be ready for at a certain time point or they don't have very specific issues that they they want to progress in whatever you know so group coaching that's a good option for those individuals do we have any other products gary that we need to plug at the end of this episode no but it, like if you have enjoyed our podcast over the past few weeks months even years at this point um i would recommend that you definitely do check out the the content that we do have on site in terms of like in both the training and nutrition theory section because i think that's where a lot of the things we talk about actually get like actualized as in like if you read through all our content you will see things like uncertainty being built into it, you know, and, and things like trying to empower through education, as in we're, if you look through the structure of the content, we're not just saying like, they're not sound bites. Like everything is built up to, everything is linked to something else. And eventually that is our long-term goal. Like we have content that's essentially written ahead of schedule that's going to be released over the next few, you know, weeks, months, and literally years until it's done. Um, and eventually at the end point, you're going to just have this big network where everything's linked together where you can essentially educate yourself and from our perspective it's going to be more comprehensive than any personal training education you're going to get anywhere else pretty much like um i think so do, do follow along you know we're, we're releasing it on our social media every week and that we're releasing things in a logical structure so you can literally just sit down i don't know every friday evening or saturday morning take one training article take one nutrition article read those and then wait for the next week and you'd be surprised how those little things can just add up over time. You know, if, if you, if just you, you can do that as well. The, the Go ahead. Best, the best bet would actually be subscribing to the newsletter because that's every, the easiest way. Every single Sunday in the morning, I think you're going to start yep. getting on. It's, we're going to release, or we're going to put out whatever we've released on social media and yep. any articles, new articles or whatever we've released. So if you're kind of like, I just want one day per week where I'm just going to read through everything sunday just you're going to get subscribed to the email list you're going to get the email and you're going to be like okay cool i sit down i'll read through these articles you know and i'm going to build my my thought processes that way right anyway, go on little pieces out of yeah <laughs> yeah no that is that is the easiest way of doing this because i think you can actually just literally like not that we're not that we're like necessarily like doing things way better than anyone else but what we are doing is something that i think is relatively unique in terms of it's coherent and in a logical process in that we're taking you from single points, single topics and building things up over time. And that's something that's just not done in the fitness industry as in everyone is operating as we always say, Patty, 
on sound bites, on these little sound bites and trends. And we want you guys that listen to our podcast to be able to escape that and to actually, you know, just learn exercise physiology for three months and just do it week by week, build up a little bit. And again, it's not about us saying these are our answers. Like we're not saying that. We're just saying, look, this is what we kind of know as a whole. These are all the topics that are relevant. And then like, I don't care if your endpoint is giving different recommendations than I would give or the Patty would give. Cause that's not our goal. Like our goal isn't to, to give you like the, the specific cook recipe. Like our goal is to turn you into a chef, you know, someone that, that you, you know how different ingredients combine. You're aware of all the ingredients, all the different ways of cooking. That, that you are a chef and that you're able to like combine different things for different individuals as opposed to being the cook who just takes the recipe and applies it like rigidly. That's not our goal. So we want you to be a chef and we're going to teach you at the triage method chef school. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's everything we want that's to do. Enough. <laughs> I think that's yeah. No, no chef school. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's everything. <laughs> We, we wanted to cover, except for the fact, Gary, and you're just going to announce it now, we are going to start vlogging again, you know? Ah, yes. Yeah. I've already recorded one, and it's, it's probably actually going to go up. Yeah, it's probably going to go up before this has gone up, so you may already see that. But, uh, Gary, you better be recording this stuff as well, because... I will. I will. I actually like vlogging. It's just a case of us kind of making it consistent. Which is... that's, that's literally what I said <laughs> in my vlog. I was like, I actually like vlogging. I yeah, enjoy. just haven't given you or given anyone a reason to think I like vlogging. <laughs> um, but yeah, like the, the goal with all the, the vlogs, well, with mine anyway, I don't know about yours, Gary, uh, is to just show people how things are practically put into practice um, in terms of like, you know, it, it's all fair and well to read something and go, oh, well, this, how, this, how this applies to nutrition. And then not have a practical framework of the whys, the whens, the hows, that that kind of stuff is implemented. You know, like actually seeing someone implement the information that is discussed and seeing it put into practice, like I think that makes things way more applicable to the everyday individual, you know, and especially because the two of us have similar goals, but we will actually be approaching things differently, well, presumably. And so you'll kind of see how different approaches lead to different kind of outcomes but at the same time lead to the same outcome you know but anyway yes vlogging starts again yeah and i think another another big thing about about vlogging that's helpful as well is that like although people ask us for a lot of advice about nutrition stuff and training all that sort of stuff people are also like how do you balance college and work and all this sort of stuff so that's another area that we kind of want to put out information about but I don't want to write about it. <laughs> I don't want to be like writing loads of articles about like, oh, this is what I do at 7 a.m. and stuff like that. Yeah, so like you can kind of just... Yeah, I also don't want to be writing about being like, here is my experience at this uh, holiday. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, no, thank you. No. So yeah, you'll see that sort of stuff as well. Um, Kyle, Patty, you're going into fourth year. I might be going into first year. So you'll see all that crack as well. But anyway, that's enough of us talking shit. Yeah, no, I'm wrapping it up here. Um, it's too easy. It's too easy. <laughs>